You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. You're listening to part three of our conversation with Bob Dragic. We emptied every grenade we had in there. And uh, that's how that evolved. And uh, the Stars and Stripes guys, I told I told that, 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 that man to stay in the Jeep and shit goes to hell, can you shoot? And he says, yeah. I said, well, there's an AR hanging on the seat here. It's my CAR behind the seat on the Jeep. I carried it my old model 12 pump shotgun out there and that's what we aced them with and uh anyway that's kind of the csc showed up uh, the whole thing went down as it was evolving they started to show up and arc light they put the arc light they called the army arc light on us <laughs> we're laying in the wire and they put the arc light down the wire, and there on the other side of the wire were three NVA. They're on one side of the wire. We're on the other side of the wire. We got arc light lighting the whole world up. And they're looking straight down. They're, well, I know that they were rubbing motor oil, rolled in the dirt, and had poncho, canvas poncho on, a poncho liner on, like a, a, a waistband. Actually, one had a, one had a satchel charge, the other one had a chai submachine pistol, and the other one had an AK-47. That's all they had. They were just a probing bunch, and, uh, and they had wire cutters, etc. on them, and they were there just to see how far they could get, uh, or that or was the local, the local VCs having fun. We don't know. We just, anyway, that's what went down on that thing, and, uh, they lit that up and they're laying on one side of the wire and I'm laying on the other side of the wire with Blair and the dog handler and we're in a deuce and a half rut is what we're in. And uh, we could hear each other breathing and we're pretty close. Anyway, I got on the radio. I said, shut the light up. And the second that light went off, they got up and uh, they run a burst then one of the weapons and we fired back and that was the end of them. So that was probably the closest intense combat that I had the whole time I was in Vietnam. Wow. And a dozen grenades and six six shotgun shots of double off buck from a, a 12 gauge at point blank range and it, it went down pretty fast. So I guess if, if you want to call it intensity, intensity, that's kind of work. So, Tell me your Korean story. <laughs> the Koreans, you know, the village outside the strip gate out there about a quarter mile. Yeah. Remember? All right. They were going to set an ambush up between, we had Tommy and, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, we had a, a local VC bunch. I don't know what we finally called them that would throw six to 12 mortar rounds at the, at the beach gate every so often and they, they hit it one time and wounded some security forces and uh actually one of the dog counters we got had a brother there that got wounded pretty bad and uh they were going to run a patrol 
and they wanted me, they wanted a dog handler to, to uh, be point on a patrol. And anyway, I got picked. So we pull up to the strip gate to hook up. Flight chief drops me off. And I won't mention his name, but he says, good luck. And that was the end of that. And he drove off. And here I got Augie. Augie's a snapper, like I said. And, and there's eight guys. At first, there's a deuce and a half parked there. The old deuce and a half with the quad 50s on it with the Korean shoes. Did they have it when you were there? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that deuce and a half. That, well, that one of many, maybe. I don't know. But the only one we ever seen that you'd see running around in town in Top Chum or wherever. There they are. They're all out there standing around the beach gate and they're waiting for me. <laughs> they unload me and I got, I got Augie on a, uh, on a choke chain with his muzzle on as usual. And so hell, these guys, I don't know what to expect. Does anybody speak English? I don't know. So I, I take Joker off put all these working color on and you know what happens when that happens they get they pretty well know what's going to go down and the korean officer a lieutenant i remember his insignia and it's kind of dark but it's not dark it's early yet it's dark and he's walking toward me and i got augie on the work and i he's i i'm trying to get him to take a leak and do all this shit and i'm away from these guys and he comes from sashaying toward me with his hand out and he says nice doggy that's all he could say <laughs> he keeps walking nice doggy <laughs> and i choke oggy up and i got him by the working collar and i pull him up in my chest and he's standing on his hind legs i'm wanting i want him as close as i can to me because i don't want him to bite the lieutenant and mr lieutenant nice doggy guy walks right smack up to me and tries to pet him <laughs> couldn't stop it and Augie grabs his hand <laughs> and, and he bites the living crap out of me blood's going everywhere he punctured a hole through the webbing and one through his you know two canine holes and the guy's not doing anything but standing there with my dog on with my dog got a hold of him and for once in his life Augie holds on and he won't let go and, and there's no shaking. There's nothing but a bunch of growling and a, and a Korean officer in my face saying, nice doggy. And the dog's got him. So I, I'm a little terrified at this point. I figured, well, I got to be on point with these guys. And I, the Korean officer's already got his ass bit. So I choked the hell out of Augie and getting the spitting out. And the guy stands there and looks at me and he says, nice doggy nice doggy and the whole damn Korean squads laughing their ass off the whole bunch so here I am terrified I thought oh no I gotta go out on patrol and 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 the Korean guy looks at his hand and he looks at everybody and he spoke Korean and waved and they all loaded in the damn truck and the Korean guy gets in the other side and they drive off and leave me sitting there so, <laughs> That's my Korean story. I never did anything with the Koreans outside the wire, but anyway, <laughs> that was it. So, yeah, and we never heard a thing about it either. So, yeah, that's my that's my Korean story. I have another Korean story. We have a dog handler. You probably well know. Shot up a two drunk Koreans at the strip gate. 
and uh, I'm not, I don't remember why. I know one was alive when I got there. I was a flight chief, and the other one was dead, I think, and they hauled the other one off. But they come up through there and was crawling through the wire strip gate, and the handler shot them up real well. And uh, that was another Korean incident, but nothing happened there either. So, wow. Yeah, that that was interesting. I my first experience with the Koreans, I was on uh, kennel duty that night, and <clears throat> their generator had run out of fuel, so they came walking down to see if they could get some more fuel. And I mean, all all I know is Asians are Asians. You know, I don't know a Vietnamese <laughs> or Korean or anything else. Yeah, I get and it. I'm 18 years old, and this guy. About three of them walk through the door of the kennel and start speaking Korean to me, and I'm thinking I'm going to die right at that point. <laughs> and finally, one of them asked me for fuel, and then it dawned on me that somebody had indicated there were Koreans out there. So, I, I they never shot 105 H and I over your head at guard mount. Oh yeah, yeah. I heard yeah. the guns go off, but. I had never the seen gun, them. Heard the guns. They must have had them suckers aimed about 20 feet over our kennels because they, they, they shoot them H and I rounds and they're right in the middle of Garden Mountain. About half the guys that almost dropped to the ground. It was, after a while, if you were there while well, you knew it was going to come, so you just you know, didn't worry about it. Yeah, yeah my first really, couple of nights on post, they'd fire them and I, I would hit the deck pretty quick. And then after that, yeah. I got used to it. And the Aussies is another one, you know. Uh, they took, they took some daytime work with us. I remember I, as a dog handler, went out. I can't even remember exactly where we went out. I think we went out the main gate and, and rode around with the crew to the canal back on the Juliet area on the backside where everybody would come in there in the morning. And we ran ID checks with a dog and a squad and checked everybody on the damn canal bank while I'm over there letting the dog snap and bark and carrying on and thinking I'm impressing the whole world with the dog, you know, and we're going to, we're doing real, real serious crap. And the Aussies would do the ID check. And if they had somebody that wasn't, wasn't good, uh, they'd bring them over and make them lay down. And I, I got the garden with the dogs. Yeah, that, but we did, we did, uh, dogs did go out a couple times after an incident and sweep with the Aussies outside the wire. I personally never, I was a flight chief at the time. But yeah, they were used a little bit with the Aussies outside the wire. And then later on in the deal, every time we had a meaningful incident, uh, we take our own uh, uh, squad and sweep the outside of the wire ourselves. We did that a lot in the Juliet area, and we did it in the Bravo area quite a bit. So we'd go out at daylight and and run a point with two dogs and uh, and uh, run six or eight dog handlers without dogs and sweep the area and see what the hell we had. That became pretty common. You know, after. that gunfight I just told you about, I had, I know they went out and swept the area the next morning, but I don't know who did that. I don't know. I assume it was security police, but I don't know who. Now, I don't think security police ever did much of that. Usually it's the Aussies did it almost exclusively and uh, Koreans never did it. They didn't want to mess with that stuff, but it was usually the Aussies. Yeah. I never had seen the security forces outside the wire. Well, never I... had anything happen outside the wire other than uh, uh, 
my never mind. We won't say his name, but fall in the canal and almost drown. But other than that, it wasn't too bad. You know, when I was there, uh, we actually had handlers that worked the Australian perimeter, and they would come out and give us coffee. Well, ale actually, they didn't give us coffee; they'd give us ale, and yeah. uh, and then we would go to their uh, officers or uh, airmen's quarters afterwards. We could go down there and drink. And that was uh, my introduction to the Australian forces, which was pretty good, actually. I enjoyed it. Yeah, ours were too. And it, it done real well. Uh, we had a handler, and he knows who he is. Everybody knows who he is. Shot up an Aussie patrol coming in, uh, miscommunication. And uh, uh, I won't go any further than that with it, but I think the Aussies screwed up on that one. But anyway, uh, he shot him up coming in at the end of the Gulf and Delta area there in the gap in the fence on that corner. So, well, actually, they were further down the wire. They came into the wire and were humping off the edge of the wire, and that was the bad deal. So, I think I probably had the first friendly fire incident while I was there. Yeah. I, as, we, as we talk about, everybody I've talked to, I've asked about PTSD. And uh, everybody's uh, filed for uh, PTSD as a claim. So uh, I would have to ask you that same question is, uh, have you struggled with any PTSD? All right, then we got to back things way, way up, okay? Uh, everybody knows here that I married, uh, or if they don't, they will. I was the probably one of the very first military guys to bring back a war bride from Vietnam that was legally married in Vietnam and had a military ID card and went through this whole evolution with me. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, uh, she was the key factor and I'll, I'll move way forward in helping me cope with this after the fact. But backing all the way up about PTSD. Yeah, I'm, I'm rated 100% and, uh, for PTSD plus a whole bunch of other shit. But uh, I never knew there was a problem. You know what I'm trying to say and how I coped and how it all came about. But after the philosophy, and I went through one of the very first PTSD uh, programs that the VA had when they expanded it to two months and they volunteered for it or if you yeah it was pretty much a volunteer well they were looking for people that had done multiple tours of Vietnam uh, basically wanted to run this to, to be a participant in this new course and at the time I was it was 19. I always had a problem, didn't realize it. I thought it was everybody else's problem. I had an anger issue. I had a lack of patience. Uh, I had a lot of frustration. I had a lot of anxieties. Uh, I did six years as a cop after Vietnam. And the only thing I knew were guns and dogs when I got back. Uh, I have a degree in criminal administration. I was going to make a career in law enforcement. PTSD stopped that and my wife. Thank God they did, because I would have eventually evolved into doing something really stupid. But I had the same issue with 
most dog handlers come up with with PTSD. And most, and, 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 and it, that struck me strange when, it, when I went through this extended course. We had 17 guys in there, and I was the only Air Force. The rest were Marines and Army. And a camaraderie after we figured out why each one of us have it, we have to go through that in class. And they almost to the man said, how in the hell can one man in a, in a, in a defensive position walk every night well, uh, from dusk to dawn or whatever that figure may be, alone on a wire between friendlies and the enemy every night, not knowing what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and how it's going to happen. And they all ask the same thing. When it happened, what happened? And you tell them, well, it was usually pretty close and, you know, and, and pretty uh, unexpected. And the PTSD people, the psychologists and the therapists all said the same thing, you know, when your adrenaline glands run wide open all the time, and uh, it, 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 it tends to do things to your brain that, that most people can't comprehend. You think, oh, hell, I was the dog handler. I went out there and set up my ass on the wire and ate sea rashes all night long and dreamt about playing cards or chasing girls in town. Uh, no, that's not how this all went down. Uh, for some guys, maybe. But uh, for me, I didn't have too much PTSD issues until after I became a flight chief. And that's when it started. I want to just say my own personal story. That's when it started to wear on me. The evolution of security at the same time changed uh, as far as what was expected from dog handlers and what was expected from flight chiefs. We had we had uh, Air Force supervisors from Tuiwa fly in, Phuket fly in to see how we were running our security, and I hauled them hauled them around a lot. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of people that, I, that rode with me wanted to see how the hell we were doing. Because after the 26th of January, Van Rang's quote-unquote reputation as a, as a knowledgeable security force group uh, or fighting unit became uh, really widespread and common knowledge in Vietnam. Not that there was no hero status, but that, that we, we had repelled and a, a, an NVA full attack on the wire with just Air Force personnel. And Van Rang was one of two, I think, totally Air Force standalone defended bases in Vietnam. We had no outer perimeter of Army or Aussies or Koreans uh, doing full-time security work like Nang or Thompson Hood, I can go on and on, play coup, that Combine the Air Force with the other security forces. Uh, Fan Rang was a standalone base. They put the 821st out there. We had our own water crews. We had our own reaction teams. We had our own uh, heavy weapons. We had heavy weapons anyway uh, from the 35th. But uh, when that when when all our quick reaction teams were were mounted in APCs or V100s or whatever it may be, uh, mechanized. Back, you know, mechanized equipment to back 
the handler up on the wire, uh, things changed and the attitude of how they were going to deploy all this stuff out there and, 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 and uh, an incident changed. It got to be so commonplace that we didn't really want the security people doing backup for the dog handlers. I petitioned this. I went to CSC. I went to Commander uh, Colonel Reeves and, and sat down and talked to him about what what wasn't working and the, the commingling of dog handlers and security forces under times of stress with an alert wasn't working so well. And we needed to be able to do something a little different. And thus, as I called it, a canine QRT team was formed, which included the flight chief, usually one other dog handler and a dog, and sometimes two ride-alongs. And we would deploy on an alert only, not anybody else. And we would move in, in a position and back these dog teams up, and the flight chief had a hands-on CSC to give him, CSC, an informed decision on what the hell's happening with that dog team on the wire. I had direct communications, usually was right there with them or awfully close. And uh, I depended on that dog team to feed the right information to me. I knew the guys, I'd been there so long, I knew the dogs. I knew some dog handlers called, <laughs> called shit in. And when they called it in, uh, hair on the back of your neck would stand up because you knew damn well these guys, they were good dog handlers and they had good dogs. Other times, new dog handlers, old dogs that we all know, we had dogs that weren't worth a crap. I'm going to put it right up out there in front of you. Uh, and we had handlers that weren't worth a crap. And I seen three sets of handlers come in that, in there. And I can tell you after 150, 160 handlers, there were a lot of them that weren't worth a crap. Every dog handler knew it and we knew it. Uh, so you, you try to take care of each other, but some dog handlers uh, needed a lot of help out there every night. And there were a hell of a lot of dog handlers that did that help and uh, got these guys through this. I've seen more than one time where one dog handler would patrol two posts while the other guy laid up because he just we won't go what was wrong. But anyway, so what I'm trying to say is the QRT, canine QRT team had a hands-on, thumb on the situation attitude. And CSC learned to respect that. And they give us a free hand out there. We went into H&I, we told them this, we told them that. Uh, they listened and it made the dog handlers job a lot better. You didn't have security running up and down the wire or, or a flight chief running up and down the damn wire looking for a dog handler sleeping. You didn't know all that crap quit, okay? Uh, it got more serious than looking for a dog handler sleeping or running a problem on a dog handler in a combat zone. All that stuff ended. I know you guys had that issue. Yeah. And uh, you didn't have any of that. It, it, became, it became real. And we treated it as real. So that evolution, it's one of the major evolutions that happened after January 26th. That was the key date, wasn't it? Kind of. It started evolving before that. It got real after that. The, the vehicle I was carrying always had 
I had a, a, an M79, a CAR, a shotgun. The other guy, and that was in the in the Jeep. Sometimes a 60 on a on a on a gun mount. Enough ammunition to supply half the perimeter, and at least 25 to 30 grenades. Enough pop flares and enough uh, 79 flares to light the whole world of fire. And that was and a, and a water can and not much coffee. We didn't give much coffee. Out. It just got to be nobody was drinking the crap. They wanted coffee. They took their sank of pack and they gulped it dry and swallowed canteen water behind it. You know how that goes. But yeah, that's what the canine QRT team was about. Uh, you had a team right there that come out that wasn't involved in the alert that could work while that guy pinned the alert. And there was a lot of things going on that gave us a lot more freedom on the wire. And CSC paid attention to K9 a lot more after the 26th. They knew what was going down then. But uh, yeah, that that was a, a big difference. And there was some changes happened on the wire too. They they started putting light units in the Gulf and the, uh, and, and, and the Juliet area. The, the new base commander wanted lighting units. They'd pull the aircraft lighting units and park them out there, and we'd go shut them off. Or we'd pinch a fuel line or do something, because the lights were known a lot there. You know that. And uh, you work better in the dark. Dogs work better in the dark. And the, the stupid light units had a diesel engine, and they made noise. So none of that was conducive to good good dog work on the wire. We got rid of most of those, one way or the other. Let me let me uh, bring this to a close and, and ask you one final thing. Uh, what's what's the one thing that you would tell an audience of uh, non-dog handlers? Uh, was important lessons that, that you walked away from after all those years as a handler? Oh, I tell you, I don't know what's important to other people that are non-dog handlers because my viewpoint in life is probably radically different than the average non-dog handler. Uh, important personal lessons? Yeah, just a, something you walked away from that, that like for me, I think I walked out of there with a, a tremendous amount of confidence in myself. There isn't many things that I'm afraid to try or do. Here, here's here's how I see it. I, I learned one thing in Vietnam, if not two things. Number one is trust. I am not a trustful person by nature, but I learned trust under extreme conditions. I learned trust. I learned trust in a new handler. I learned trust in an old handler. I learned trust. There's a lot of reasons you've got to trust somebody. Uh, and I also learned on the opposite side of the coin, uh, suspicion. I'm most cops are naturally a suspicious person that just honed me in Vietnam. I, on the positive side of life, uh, uh, I guess I'm not a real religious person, but I got to tell you, I, I have faith in destiny and I have faith. And uh, when times get tough, you got to look somewhere besides your own abilities. And uh, you've got you've got to call upon your faith to get you through some things. And uh, I guess those two things. Two, 
two or three things probably what breeds out of a combat zone trust and love and faith and uh, on the opposite distrust hate fear I mean you know it, it, it walks especially with somebody with PTSD you can bounce off that one end to the other when I come back from Vietnam uh, I, I gotta tell you uh, I thought there's not a damn thing I can't do you know I'm 22 years old in Vietnam running a canine QRT team on a wire uh, throwing throwing orders out there and telling what people what to do and getting people through their one-year tour and the whole thing was to get out of there and get back home and that was true for every one of us but in the meantime you also had a job to do and uh, you had to put it on the line sometimes when you didn't want to but I that that imprinted me through my whole life yeah, made I've, a I've always had to work on the edge. Everything. Uh, the jobs I've had when I come back from the service, always working on the edge. And uh, I, I worked the oil field for 16 years, drilling wells. Man against Mother Nature. No expense spared. All the iron you wanted and all the decisions you wanted to do to get one thing done, get the oil out of the ground. That's the kind of edge that I had to have. I had to have it. And uh, it reflects the day in my 22 years of retirement in Alaska. Uh, I still play the edge, but I do it in this environment. I hunt extreme long-range hunts. I, uh, I, You know, Alaska teaches you to be... Uh, uh, careful and the excitement of living up here uh, if you do it it keeps you on the edge so okay. I guess that's what I can say it's taught me to uh, live life on the edge but also have trust faith and destiny well thank you Bob thank you for listening to War Dogs Podcast please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and share with your friends and family